Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedelium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Please be seated. Now, for those of you that have grown up in the church, or at least have been in church long enough, you know that one of the words we use for the Lord's Day is, it's a day of rest. So the idea that your pastor would talk to you about work on a rest day might seem a little bit laborious. But I'm hoping that by the time we're done, that you will begin to be captivated by the fact that Work is something we need to really probably do a better job from our pulpits talking about. And why would I say that? Well, most statistics suggest that the average person spends 40 to 75 percent of their lives working in some form or fashion. There's nothing else you spend more of your time doing than work. And I'm not just speaking of work that you actually do to earn cash. I'm saying all the things you do to maintain homes, to maintain vehicles, to all the different things you do in your life. There's all kinds of things that we do that are work. There are things we have to do in order to keep our lives functioning. You might not think about it, but even personal hygiene is an aspect of working. You have to do this. It's something you have to do. And sometimes shaving for me can be a real job. It's like I just, you know, I'm so glad when Saturday rolls around, I'm just tired of raking that razor across my face. <laughs> and since I don't get to give my face a rest on Sundays, I try and give it a rest on Saturdays. But the point that I'm trying to get across to you here is, is that work is very essential for us to think about in our day-to-day -day lives and praise the Lord. It's something that God talks about right from the very beginning. Work is something that we need to talk about because God talks about it. There are those who see work 
from this perspective, it's a way to achieve success, meaning, value, worth in life. That's why they work. Work gets them what they want. This has become so prevalent in our society that oftentimes what's the typical greeting that used to be mainly what two men would ask, but now it's becoming much more just what you ask anybody you're talking to. What do you do? The whole definition of who you are as a person often is defined by your vocation. What do you do? There's a little um, interesting point I read in one of the books I've been reading as I've been preparing for this, and he points out this man who said, when asked that question, something to this effect, um, what do you do? Uh, or he said, he said, who are you? I think this is what, what the question was actually. Who are you? And he says, I'm a Christian thinly disguised in an accountant. The point he's trying to get across is I'm more than just being an accountant. There's something more fundamental to who I am. And so the, the point that we want to understand is that work is something that we need to see not just as a defining our whole existence, but rather something that we're about. The other side of it, though, is that for many, and for those of you that, like me, have uh, bouts of insomnia from time to time and are relegated to, uh, to watching infomercials ad nauseum in, in the wee hours of the night, hoping that one of them will bore you so bad that you'll fall asleep. What do most infomercials these days show for those of you that watch them? Well, here's the promise they hold out for you. If you just do this method of real estate, if you just do this internet selling scheme, if you just do this, that, or the other, you could quit working and actually do the things that really matter in life. What I'm really saying to you is that human beings tend to do one or two things with work. They either make it the thing that defines who they are and achieves all the things they want, or they make it the means to, to get rid of it so they can get to the really important things of life. The real question that ultimately defines this was defined, and for those of you, I will date myself, but if you remember a band back in the 80s called Loverboy, they had a song which kind of defines this whole phenomenon. Everybody's working for the weekend. Why? Because we either want to get to the weekend so we can bask in what our work has achieved for us or so that we can get rid of work and bask in all the really important things. But the main issue is, is that we have this sinking suspicion within our lives that work is not good. That work is really a bad thing. So the first point I want us to look at from this text is and ask this question, is work good? I think that's a worthwhile question. Because for all of us, it's something we need to wrestle with. The reason why that's a relevant question is because you may not realize it, but Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, to the ancient world would have been an absolute shocking idea. Because if you were to read most of the ancient myths, like the Enuma Elish, which I've mentioned in the past, you would find out that when Marduk, the god, had killed Tiamat, the great sea creature representing chaos, and he slit her open and began to create the world. He invited the other gods to come into Tiamat, into this creative world, and ask them to join him in being a part of this. And when he pulled open the carcass and showed them the created order, they looked at it and said, do you realize what kind of effort it's going to take 
to keep this place up? And Marduk said, no problem. I'll make this lowly, worthless creature called man, and I'll put him in the universe to keep the world running so we can rest. Now, that is the worldview that was operating in most of the places that Israel was heading to out of Egypt. And remember, just to bring you back into context, Genesis is written for the people of Israel after they've come out of Egypt and as they're heading into Canaanite territory, into a place that clearly the Enuma Elish was one of the major writings, one of the major ideologies. So think about it. Marduk creates human beings so that the gods can rest. The other thing I want you to realize is, is that that was not only true of them, it was true of the Egyptians as well. The Egyptians viewed a lot of the task of labor as things that the subservient do, the really noble, worthwhile, the God-like people were the priests and the royal family. In fact, so much that the priests and the royal family were at times viewed as gods. And so again, you see that the culture around them was basically an idea that work, that getting your hands dirty, that if you were a man who came home with grease underneath your fingernails, you obviously were of the worst sort of being. Because everyone knows that work is bad. Now you might say, okay, well that's the ancient Near East, but realize this. In our own Western tradition, one of the things that was in Pandora's box when that box or that jar was opened, out of all the vile, evil, wicked things, one of the things that was in there was work. There was disease, there was famine, there was all these other things, and lo and behold, among that list of bad things was work. So within the whole context of both the New and the Old Testament, the world, the prevailing world views around them are work is a bad thing. Figure out how striking then it is when you hear in Genesis chapter 2, God finished his work that he had done. How striking that stands up against the whole way most people think, including people in the church. Work. I mean, think about it, men and women. How do most people in the church process work? Well, there's all that work you do over here, but then there's the really important things of the church, as if somehow the stuff you do over here is irrelevant to really being a good, godly Christian. I mean, that's just stuff you do so you can go on mission trips, so you can support missionaries. That's what you do over there, but then there's the really good stuff. Of what? Of work. What do you think? Missionaries just sit on the field and play pinochle together and hope somebody comes to faith in Jesus? You think I only work one day a week? Well, you might think that, but I, I, I wish it were true, men and women. I wish it were true. The point is, is that we have to understand that even within our own circles, we have an attitude about work. Who's going to come to work day on the 20th of October? We're only those people who've got nothing better to do on their Saturdays. 
but work. See, we don't think much about work. We, it's really kind of embedded within our system. And so here we come with God saying, I'm a worker. Genesis 1 is all about God stepping back and saying, look what I spoke and this happened and this happened and this happened and this happened. And so you might get the impression that God is only one who just steps back and speaks and it comes into existence, which is true. And it'd be okay if that's all it was. But Genesis chapter 2 comes in and says something about God and how he works. And tells us that work is good. How do we know this? Well, God's a gardener. Do you see that in Genesis chapter 2? What's it tell us? And God made a garden. He made it. He formed it. It's not the same word that's used at the very beginning of Genesis where it says he created out of nothing and spoke it. We're told that he goes and forms a garden. He makes it. He develops it. He cultivates it. How do we know that? Well, we're just told in Genesis chapter 2 verse 5 there was no vegetation on the whole planet. Why? Because there was no rain. And there was no man to till the ground. So who tilled it? God did. God was a gardener. In other words, what we're hearing in this text is that God knows how to get his hands dirty. He has dirt and grease underneath his fingernails. What else do we see in God? We see that God is a potter. He scoops, he digs a little ditch there in the dirt and scoops and forms this man. So he has artistic quality because we assume that Adam must have been at least a, a fairly decent specimen of human being. He may not have been, he may not have been Brad Pitt, but hey, you know, he, he, he wasn't, I don't know, you, you name the person that might not be that attractive. And he wasn't that person either. Apparently Adam probably was a decent looking fellow. Probably wouldn't have been hard on the eyes. And so the point here is that God artistically forms this man. And so we see that God is an artist. He's a potter. Some ways, if we really want to get right down to it, he's forming a human being, and we all know we got plumbing inside of us, so in some sense, God's a plumber. He's laying the electrical veins through us. I mean, do you see how we see God in all these different capacities being a God who's very much involved in the everyday sort of things that we do? And what I want you to begin to think about as we look at this is that if God is a worker, what does that start to say about all of work? Is it fair for us to have such ideologies in our head as work is spiritual if you're doing spiritual things and work is unspiritual for not doing spiritual things? And then we really have to ask the question, what do we mean by spiritual versus non-spiritual things? As if somehow we have an idea that because Steve Boyer works on airplanes, that somehow his work is less significant in the eyes of God than Dennis Hermerding, who studies theology and reads commentaries for a living. As if somehow my job was more spiritual, more valuable, that God's more interested in what Dennis is doing on Monday than what Steve is doing. That's completely untrue. There's no sensibility of that. And how can I say that? Well, it's not just what I've told you as well. Look back at our text and I want you to see something that happens here. It says that the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden in verse 15 to work it and keep it. Now, I want you to think about this. The Garden of Eden was a temple. That's what it was. It was the temple. The mountain of God stood in the midst of that garden. And Adam and Eve... 
Adam first, but Eve to come alongside him to be a helper, were supposed to do what? Well, they were supposed to do what was lacking in Genesis 2.5. Fill the whole earth to go out and till it. Until the whole earth was this beautiful garden. Unless you think it was just supposed to be nothing but vegetation, if you think the only type of lifestyle is agrarian, I want to argue with you, I don't think that's true. And I'll tell you some of the reasons why. Why are we told about this gold? And we're not just told it was your average run-of-the-mill gold. I mean, there, you know, there's gold, but then there's gold. And see, are we told that in the text? Then we kind of get that idea that, you know, here we go to the, to the whole, this river flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good, pure. It's ready to be used. And there's bedillium and onyx stone are there. And the interesting thing is, do you know those very substances are some of the very dominant things that show up in the temple? Isn't that fascinating? That right here in Genesis chapter 2, the people of Israel who are about to have this tabernacle plop right down in the middle of them and ultimately are going to be given instructions how to build this temple down the road, the very source of that is seen right here in the garden. And the task of going out and creating and cultivating and bringing culture and society around the globe for the purpose of glorifying God, being His image bearers everywhere in every place, is given to mankind. And we're said that, so that means that every task that a man sets himself to in that endeavor is noble, spiritual, God honoring work. Now, how encouraging is that to you, students, who sometimes ask as you're getting your second master's degree or you're trying to finish finally your undergraduate degree or you're thinking, will I ever get through my senior year? See how encouraging that is? You're not wasting your time. You're actually called to be a student. If you're an engineer, if you're a plumber, if you're a doctor, if you're a whatever you're called to do, it is a spiritual endeavor because God has called you to it. So we have got to get rid of that idea that somehow there's a more spiritual task to be about and a less spiritual one. Everything you are to do is to be done as a means of glorifying and honoring the Lord. And maybe the most important job that goes on in our church and in churches across the world is that very underrated, underthought of job called the housewife. Who labors and works and cultivates and teaches and instructs for years with very little acclamation either from her family or from her culture. But the reality is, that is most noble and spiritual work. So, the second question I want us to look at then is, what is the goal of work? I hope we've established work is good. So what's the goal of work? What's its point? Why do people work? We've already said in some ways why people work is it makes them feel important. It makes them feel valuable. It offers security. For some, it offers control. For others, it offers power. For others, it offers affirmation or value. 
I am somebody because I make big bombs that blow up a whole bunch of things. I am somebody because I figure out how rocks work and how the earth does all these things it does inside of it. And the, wor the world, I'm, I'm important because I happen to make beautiful music or I, I do these great artworks. That's what makes me important. That's what gives me value. That's what gives me worth. And for many people, if not most people, that has at least something to do with why they work. One of the most vivid illustrations, at least in my own mind, of this very thing is my own stepfather. Who labored his entire life because his father always told him he was going to end up being worthless and a bum. And my stepfather passed on that viewpoint to me of saying, you need to work hard, you need to study hard, you need to do things, because the worst thing in life is to be a bum. Don't be a bum, Dennis. Work hard. Study hard. Don't be a bum. Now think about what that did to my stepfather. How everything he did, in it, and he was a very successful man. Very successful. When he passed away, he left over an estate of worth over a million dollars. And his, some of his parting statements to my mother were, my children will know I was successful. And you know the tragedy of that whole thing? By the time the lawyers and the accountants got through with that estate, there was several hundred thousand dollars that got dispersed to the family. All that life to not be a bum. And there wasn't much to show for it. So, we have to ask ourselves, what are we working for? Well, here are at least, hopefully, several things that will help us to think about that. What is the goal of work? One thing that will help us to ascertain what our goal should be or how we should be working, maybe is a better way to put it, not necessarily the goal, is we're to look to ourselves and to ask ourselves, what has God made me like? You know, do I have a do I have kind of a, a personality which enables me to get out there and sell things? Do I have the ability? Do I have a brain which is able to create things? Do I, I really like hanging out with animals and trying to figure out how the plumbing inside a creature works? Do I, I love crawling underneath the house or getting underneath the sink and being a handy kind of guy? What is it that I enjoy doing? What is it that I seem to have aptitude for? Do I seem to excel in math or English? Do I write well? Do I you see what I'm saying? There's a sense in which one of the things we have to do if we're to ascertain how we should go about working is to look to ourselves and say, what is it that I seem to be called to do? What makes me tick? And so we should look at that and ask ourselves that and we should pursue that. And let me just say this. If I was to stop right there, most of you would be very happy and you'd be very American because all of us as Americans want something that says, hey, it's all about you. What do you like to do? What makes you happy? What makes you feel really important? But that's not the only thing we need to ask. See, in some sense, we need to be humble if we, in fact, have those gifts and abilities because guess what? You didn't conjure those up on your own. I don't care how good you are at math and praise the Lord if you had great teachers and praise the Lord if you're good at it or good at being an engineer or a great musician. You didn't give yourself the raw natural abilities to be good at those things. They're not yours. Somebody else gave them to you to do something with. So the second thing you want to look at then is not just to yourself and ask with it, but then you ought to look out around you. 
You ought to look at your world and at your neighbor and say, how do my gifts and abilities fit into this particular time and place? And what would be of the most help? How could I be of the most service to help this world and help people around me? And if you begin to do that, what you all of a sudden do is you're not so much thinking about yourself. You're all of a sudden thinking about the world God gave us to care for. Remember, Adam and Eve were placed in the garden to work and keep it, to tend it, to care for it, to watch over it. And also, we're supposed to care about our brothers and sisters. We're supposed to care about humanity at large. These are people made in the image of God. They matter. Therefore, surely we can't have a self-centered approach to how we think about our calling. It has to somehow be informed by what are the needs out there and around us. The third thing we need to do is we're to look up to God and acknowledge Him as the giver of all that we have and the author of all that we do. Think about Ephesians. We were just there not that long ago, so it shouldn't be too far a stretch for some of you. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. We are His artwork, His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for long bouts of leisure. Is that what it says? Created in Christ Jesus for good works that He prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Do you see what that's telling us? When you start to have a Godward orientation to your gifts and calling, what you all of a sudden start to realize is, do you realize that there are things on planet Earth that can't get done unless Michael McClung does them? Unless Jeshua Hermerding does them? Unless Christopher Hall does them? That's what that verse is telling us. There are things that individuals in this church are called to do, and if you aren't here to do them, they won't get done. The assurance that we have in that is that it really is dependent on, ultimately on you, ultimately, because God prepared them for you to walk in them. But see, the confidence you have as you go out into your day-to-day -day activities, God called me and set me apart. And as I think about what my gifts are and as I think about how that could serve other people in this world, and as I look to Him, all of a sudden I start to have a sense of place and space. Now notice a contrast that's going on here that I think is well represented in that very good movie. And if you've never seen it, shame on you. See it. Chariots of Fire. And there's a striking contrast going on in that movie between Eric Lytle and, I knew I was going to forget, why so I wrote his name down, Harold Abrams. Here's Harold Abrams' claim to fame in life. I've got 10 seconds to justify myself. I've got 10 seconds to run from this point to that tape to justify myself. And here's Eric Lytle. I run, and when I run, I feel his good pleasure. You see the striking difference of what's going on there? One man says, I've got 10 seconds to work hard. All this work I've done, all this sacrifice, everything in my life comes down to 10 seconds. And if I fail, I'm worth nothing. And another man says, I run because when I do it, I feel as good pressure. I mean, here's... Abram's basically running along and saying these things. 
of different techniques and learning all these things. And here, Eric Lytle, who basically runs with a horrible technique. I mean, the guy, for crying out loud, puts his head not down. He runs with it back like this. I mean, it's insane. Everyone knows that's horrible aerodynamics. What's the man thinking? And he's the fastest person on the planet at that time. Because he runs to feel his good pleasure. Now, I do want to say this on that. I'm not suggesting somehow that if you do it for the right way, you're going to be the best. You may not be. In fact, what we see most of the time in society is people who probably are the most godless, oftentimes the most successful. The best engineers in this country are not professing believers. I hate to tell you that. I hate to burst your bubble, but they're not. The best doctors in this country, most of the time, are not believers. Which points to the fact that good work is done because that's what we were called to do. Work is good, but I want us to understand that as believers or as people who profess faith in God, even when we look at all this, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be the most successful, the most prominent, the most celebrated. It's just not true. That doesn't take away from the fact that that's what you're called to do. You have a place. You have a purpose. You have a time to matter. You do. Now, let's say you do all those things I just said. And some of you in this room I know already believe this, and that's how you try to think about your vocation, how you try to think about your activities in life. And you and I both know that no matter how great your job is, no matter how clearly you're in the right calling and gifting, no matter how successful you may be at what you do, you still get burnt out. You still feel like, is this it? I keep trying to do the same thing. I keep getting up. And it just seems very mundane, very wearisome, very burdensome. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, it, work can't be all there is. So how do we do it? How do we keep working if that's what we're called to do? Well, the text tells us we need rest. I mean, it's kind of like, duh, Dennis, of course. You need rest. And I want us to think about this because we do. So much of our culture is at odds with rest. There's always one more thing to go to. There's always one more issue to be dealt with. There's always one more project that just needs a few more minutes. There are men who go home and they've got their laptop. I mean, technology's not the problem, but technology has not helped the problem because you just sit there with your computer and your trio and your Blackberry and whatever other gadget you can drag into your house to basically assure yourself that you will get absolutely no rest. Let me just tell you something, and I want you all to know this, just so if you ever call me and, and you go, well, what in the world does that guy have a cell phone for? I have a cell phone to talk to me when I want to talk to him. And that's why at 6 p.m. when I walk in the house, I turn the thing off and shut. So if you ever get me after 6, you should say, shame on you, Dennis. The phone is not supposed to be on. Or you know I'm out doing something besides being at home that night, which is okay because that's probably something that was on the schedule. But typically speaking, when I walk in the door, that cell phone gets turned off at 6 p.m. Because that cell phone does not rule Dennis Hermerding. That's not my bastion of existence is not being on that phone. And what I'm saying to you is, is that we have to realize that while we say, no kidding, we need rest, everything in our world fights against it. 
Every soccer mom knows that there's no such thing as real rest. They know it. Or football mom. They know there's no such thing as rest because the carpool never ends. And so we have to realize That ought to mean something to us. That we need rest. Now, one of the things we know about our physical bodies, and most of us are aware of this, I hope, at this point, is that you can have tons and tons of sleep, but doctors will tell you that if you don't get a certain kind of sleep, you can sleep all the time, but you never really are going to feel rested. And we know that there's a sense, we know what that's called, right? Rapid eye movement, REM, a band used to be good, kind of went weird later on. <laughs> Rapid eye movement. Here's the point. We need deep rapid eye movement in order to really have rested. The thing I want you to realize this is when this text tells us that God made Adam a living being, it does not give us this idea that there's, well, there's spiritual rest, there's physical rest, there's emotional rest. There's Adam was made a being, a whole unit which means that what he needed was comprehensive rest. And there's a sense in which you need to understand that for human beings to ever really rest, there has to be something beyond just taking a vacation, beyond just taking a day and setting it apart to just do nothing else but rest. There has to be something more. And indeed, the text points us that there's something more. Notice back in Genesis chapter 2, verse... Three, or excuse me, verse 2, it says this. It says, And on the seventh day God finished His work that He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all His work that He had done. Do you notice, and it's unfortunate that it's in chapter 2 because it's really kind of the conclusion of chapter 1. Do you notice the thing that's not said there? What's the repetition? And there was evening and there was morning, day 7. It's not there. It just says, God rested from all the work that he had done. So it has to be pointing us to something more, doesn't it? And doesn't that show up in Exodus when we see the people who, when they get to the waters, this God who parted all the waters, separated this whole inland sea, they walked through it, he's basically provided for them over and over again, cared for them, sent all these plagues, and they show up at this water and they go, well, the water's bad. God must be bad. All this work for nothing. All this walking for nothing. And what we told that they did, they hardened their hearts at the waters of Massa and Mirabah. And what shows up in Psalm 95? Again, but this whole declaration to worship the Lord, praise the Lord, enter into His presence. We are the people of His pasture, the sheep of His hand. Don't be like those people at the waters of Massa and Mirabah. And lo and behold, what do we see showing up again in Hebrews chapter 3 and 4? Those people did not enter the rest. Did they have some sort of rest? Of course they did. They knew that the Sabbath regulation, they were resting, they were doing the things they were supposed to do, but they never really entered into the rest. So you can do all these things. You can understand your calling. You can look around your world. You can see God. You can do all those things and still feel the weight 
of not being rested. And the point that the text is trying to draw us to is this. That ultimately, the motivational structure of the heart cannot be ruled by work and can't be quenched by just earning enough money so you can have leisure and rest and relaxation. There must be something more that's necessary. And in fact, isn't that what we find out when we get to a cross? Isn't that what we hear being screamed out by the Savior? The work is finished. It is finished. Now, my people can rest. Do you see that ultimately what we see in Genesis 2 points us to something greater? And that is the fact that the real rest we have is in God Himself. And without God, there is no real rest. Work will never achieve. And don't you see how that starts to expose us? Because if we'd really believe this, what we'd start to do is put away our idols of value that comes from our work and the power that we so desperately seek and the security and the safety that we hope our financial resources will bring to us. We'd be able to set it aside and say, God is my greatest treasure. Don't I see that the great creator king who became a carpenter, a worker, an average common Joe came and set me free so I didn't have to run in the rat race anymore, so I didn't have to basically be driven and defined by what I do, but rather by what he's done. And if you can start to get that, then hear this. And this comes from partly from Hebrews. If you see this and recognize your need for this today, as the writer says, today, the writer says in Hebrews, today, if you hear his voice, hear what Jesus says. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, burdened, weighed down, and I will give you rest. May God make it so in our midst. Amen.